They say the trend is your friend in investing, but it's awfully hard to pin that trend down in September, what the stock market is trying to tell us now. Palantir is preparing for its IPO this week, and investors have been waiting a long time for this one, what you need to know about the mysterious data mining company before it goes public. Is the recent market volatility making your stomach turn? Don't worry. We've actually seen this movie before in the last recession. Fidelity's Jurian Timmer joins the Express with his historical perspective. And why is the Volcker Rule coming up again this week? We'll explain in this week's edition of Terminology. On your mark, get set and get ready for the Investopedia Express. I'm your host, Caleb Silver. Here are a few big stories to get us going. Since last week's episode, the S&P 500 has fallen into and out of a correction. That's a drop of 10% or more from recent highs. Tech stocks, especially the mega caps, have led the retreat and the recovery like they have all year. But money flows tell us that institutional investors started pulling money out of stocks last week, just after coming back into the market after sitting on the sidelines all summer. Where did they put it? Government bonds, cash, and gold. The same places they've been hiding since March. And the asset class returns for 2020 tell the tale. Gold has delivered investors a 22% return this year. U.S. Treasuries and investment-grade bonds have delivered around 6-7% to returns this year, and you can thank the Federal Reserve for those since they've been the big buyer of those securities. Global equity returns are effectively flat for the year. Of course, a select few individual stocks have done a lot better than that, but for every big winner, there are several losers in its wake. That lack of conviction may keep stocks range-bound through the election. Speaking of elections, the U.S. presidential election is the number one concern on the minds of Investopedia readers, according to our recent survey. Does the person sitting in the Oval Office actually move the market? We'll get into that question with Fidelity's Urian Timmer in just a little bit. 2020 has been a banner year for initial public offerings. With three months left on the calendar, U.S.-listed IPOs have raised nearly $95 billion through last week, according to Dealogic. That already surpasses the totals of every year except 2014 since the tech bubble in 2000. There have been some notable blockbusters, including the IPO of cloud computing software provider Snowflake a couple weeks ago. That was the biggest software IPO in history, by the way. This week brings Palantir to the public markets and investors and its venture capitalists who have backed the mysterious data mining company since it was founded in 2003. They've been licking their chops for this debut. For more on Palantir, its founder, and the prospects for the company, we turn to our own Deb D'Souza, my partner on the Investopedia Express daily newsletter. Deb, welcome back to the Express. Hi, it's good to be back. What do we know about Palantir besides that it's backed by Peter Thiel and some of the most well-heeled venture capital firms in the world? What does this company do? So Palantir has been around for a while. It's been around since 2003. It builds searchable platforms for its customers, which are mainly government agencies or police departments. It builds these platforms that allow them to look at a collection of data with visualizations to spot patterns, track criminals. For example, it builds a license plate database. It helps the U.S. military detect bombs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's got some government contracts with some big government agencies, plus its work in the private sector. But it is mining data, which is the currency of the 21st century. Deb, we've seen a lot of investors put currency in data mining and data software companies with the recent IPO of Snowflake. Is that what's generating the excitement here? This is a real business, right? Yeah, of course it is. It's important to remember, though, that Palantir is only accessing the data that it's given. 
So when it has access to sensitive data, like from the CIA or the FBI, it's using their data to build these platforms and help them out. So it's really building a way for them to look at their data in a better way. Let's talk about Alex Karp, the founder and CEO of Palantir. He's kind of an iconoclast in Silicon Valley. In fact, he moved the firm out of Silicon Valley. What do we know about Alex Karp and his sort of vision for the company? Right. Alex Karp is one of the three founders alongside Peter Thiel and Stephen Cohen. He's an interesting guy like the other two. He has a doctorate in critical theory. And he recently wrote in the S1 filing a letter that distanced Palantir from the rest of the tech companies that he says takes advantage of customers by selling their data. It was a strange move to do, but you can sort of see him position Palantir in a more defensive way. And he's expecting some of the backlash that comes with the work that they do. In fact, in Palantir's S1 filing, it lists among the risks social activists ruining its reputation or tarnishing its reputation. Even a new government, even a new administration could probably see what it does as negative and move away from using its services. These are risks that the company faces. And because of the kind of data it handles, the other big risk is breaches or bad actors within these firms or agencies. Palantir, definitely in a sensitive spot, especially with the U.S. presidential elections coming in the next few weeks. The company trying to raise upwards of $22 billion in a direct listing to go public. Deb, thanks for the time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. The fastest bear market in history, followed by the fastest bull market recovery in history, followed by a correction for U.S. stocks, followed by yet another bounce back in just the last week. Feeling the volatility? We all are. But what are the market signals telling us now? Well, it's my pleasure to welcome in Urian Timmer to The Express. He's the Director of Global Macro for Fidelity Management and Research and a longtime market watcher. Welcome to The Express, Urian. Hello. Thanks for having me. You point out a lot of comparisons in your research to the 2008-2009-10 recovery to what we're seeing right now in U.S. equity markets. What are the key similarities and differences and, and how can they help us make sense of where we might be headed? Yeah. So obviously there's always going to be a lot of differences between cycles, but the way that the market is leading the fundamentals here is very similar. And you know, if it's one thing I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it uh, as well, over the past six months or so is that the market is disconnected from reality, Wall Street versus Main Street. Markets are delusional. They don't reflect what's going on around us with the pandemic and the fallout from that crisis. But in fact, the market actually is doing what it typically does, which is it discounts the future. The market doesn't always discount the future correctly, but it's always discounting. And especially at inflection points, you can see a big difference between what price is doing and what the fundamentals are around us. I mean, price is always leading the future, but during an uptrend or a downtrend, you may not notice it because it's going in the same direction. But at inflection points, price will tend to lead about by a couple of quarters And that's exactly what happened in 2009. The market following the financial crisis bottomed in March of 2009. By the time earnings actually bottomed uh, six months later, the S&P was up 50% already from the low. 
This time around, it's exactly the same thing. So it looks like earnings are bottoming around now. Price bottomed six months ago, and the market is up around 50%, or at least it was last week. It's up 45% today. So retail investors you're in have grown very anxious in recent weeks, especially as the election nears. That's according to a recent survey that we've done on Investopedia with our readers. But you can see it in volatility. You can see it in volatility pricing, VIX pricing out into you know the election period. Is there anything we as individual investors can learn from history? past elections that can help inform us as to what we might expect over the next five weeks? I've looked at elections and their impact on the markets or their perceived impact on the markets for my entire career. And I've sliced it basically any which way you can in terms of, okay, which party wins the White House? Which party wins the Senate or the House of Representatives? Is it a sweep? Is it a gridlocked government? And what happens to the stock market over the subsequent one, two, three, four years? And what I found is a very consistent pattern that while different election outcomes can have a pretty different effect on the markets, depending on what the outcome is, whether it's a sweep, from which party, et cetera, over the full four-year term of a president, those differences fall away. So if you look at the two years following an election, you can see that you know this party does better than that party in terms of the future return for the stock market. But those differences are all gone over four years. And four years later, no matter how you slice the data, the return is about 9% per year. And that shows you that ultimately the markets are bigger, the economy is bigger than an election cycle. And I think also the midterm elections, which can be a, a course reset if the pendulum is swinging too far in one direction or another. I think that's also a very important way for the markets to kind of reset. So what are the key indicators that you look at on a daily or weekly basis to help you gain perspective of where we are in this market cycle? You do this every day. You've been doing it for years. What are your go-tos? You know, I started out as a technical analyst, so I still look at a lot of charts. I make all my own charts and I've got probably... Of them. And so I, I will look at, at least on the shorter term uh, stuff, I will look at a lot of indicators. For instance, I'll look at the percentage of stocks in the S&P that are trading above or below their 50-day moving average, for instance, or their 20-day moving average, or their 200-day moving average. And for instance, a few weeks ago, when the market made uh, its new all-time high on September 2nd, it was 35.88 on the S&P 500, something like 90% of the stocks in the S&P were above their 20 20-day moving average. That's a very short-term oscillator, but it's useful to, to measure uh, at least where things are over the shorter term. Uh, yesterday, that number was, I think, at 5 or 8%, very oversold. So that, that'll be one type of indicator. I'll look at the percentage of stock that have an overbought momentum reading. So the RSI, for instance, the relative strength index. And for instance, June 8th, which was what I would call the day trading top. That's when kind of these retail day traders all piled into companies that were basically left for dead with the pandemic, you know, car rentals, cruise lines, and they started buying them. And that kind of led to a crescendo. And on that June 8th, 44% of the stocks in the S&P had an RSI of more than 70. That's a pretty unusual reading. So I'll look at indicators like that to see where the extremes are. But then on the fundamental side, for instance, I'm a big fan of the discounted cash flow model. A PE ratio right now, given where we are in the cycle, is not really a useful indicator because price is going up and earnings are still coming down. They're bottoming, but they're still 
coming down. So at an inflection point, a PE ratio doesn't really tell you much because it's going to make the market look much more overvalued than it actually is. So a DCF or discounted cash flow model measures earnings over a five-year period and then discounts those earnings by essentially a discount rate or the cost of capital. Yeah. And you just made the Investopedia pinball machine tilt dropping all those financial terms. So folks, obviously look all those up on Investopedia, but, but what you describe is really the gumbo soup, the, the, the under the hood fundamentals of what makes markets and securities work. And we really appreciate that. You're in, you know, we are a, a site that was originally built as a dictionary, a financial terms site. We've grown obviously from that, but what's your financial term? Is it discounted cash flow? What's that financial term that just makes the world come together for you in the way you see things? It really is because it does incorporate all the different angles, right? It explains why the Japanese stock market trades at, let's say, a 16 multiple and the U.S. trades at a 20 or 25 multiple. Because again, it's that focus on returning, paying out more of the earnings to shareholders. And ultimately, if you're an investor, if you're a shareholder, if you buy a company or an index or a mutual fund, the earnings growth is important. But how much of those earnings are returned to you? via either dividends or buybacks or both. And buybacks, of course, is not a direct return of shareholder capital, but it's indirect because share buybacks reduce the trading float and, and you know supply and demand, et cetera. It's my go-to way because it, it addresses all the different nuances of why markets are trading where they are. And it gets you past the near-termism of wondering, are earnings bottoming today or is it, in, is it next quarter? And what is the trajectory? Because over five years, you get a much better, smoother picture of what the earnings power of either a company or an index or a sector uh, will look like. And and as I said, uh, the interest rate component is crucial and, and a PE ratio does not address that. Right, which is why we listen so carefully to the Federal Reserve in its FOMC meetings and, and in what it is telling us on a regular basis. Well, we really appreciate your time. You're in Timmer, the Director of Global Macro for Fidelity Management and Research. We appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the Express. And folks, really do follow him and read his research notes if you want to learn more about this. Great stuff, you're in. Great. Thank you very much for having me. It's time for terminology. When we go deep on the investing and finance term you need to know this week. We're going to go tall this week as we explore the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule, according to my favorite website, is a federal regulation that generally prohibits banks from conducting certain investment activities with their own accounts and limits their dealings with hedge funds and private equity funds. The Volcker Rule aims to protect customers by preventing banks from making certain types of speculative investments that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis. It was named after former Fed Chair Paul Volcker, who served in both the Carter and Reagan administrations, and he stood about six foot nine, hence the tall part. Well, why are we bringing up the Volcker Rule this week? Because five federal agencies, including the SEC and the FDIC, the watchdogs for investors and bank customers, voted back in June to amend the Volcker Rule. One of the big changes, permitting banks to take stakes in venture capital and private equity funds that were previously banned, meaning that asset managers and other banks will soon be able to increase their investments in these funds and offer them to you, their customers. So why are they doing this? Well, you may not know this, but the amount of public companies has been shrinking every year since 1996. In fact, there are around 50% fewer public companies today than there were over 20 years ago. The ones coming public may be bigger, but most companies are choosing to stay private or sell to a public company or merge with a rival. Very few institutional and individual investors can access the private markets, but that's where a lot of money is sitting and asset managers want a piece of it. 
But know this, private equity has the word private in it for a reason. There's not a lot of information on these companies for investors to look at. If you like risk and lack of visibility, you'll love the changes coming to the Volcker Rule. For everyone else, buyer beware. Well, that's it for this week's Express. Subscribe to our daily newsletters, follow us on social, and rate this podcast wherever you're listening to it, and give us some feedback. We'll let the legendary investor and godfather of index investing, Jack Bogle, take us out this week with his words of wisdom. Stay the course. Press on regardless. We'll talk to you next week.